0: Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon to be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to season three, episode six of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined today with Kathy Randall. I've known Kathy for several years now. She is a master's master's prepared clinical nurse specialist and board certified neonatal nurse practitioner. Really excited because you're our first neonatal nurse practitioner, nurse extravaganza of any kind of baby. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) With more than 20 years of neonatal clinical expertise, Mm -hmm. she is also the founder of Synapse Care Solutions an education and consulting company dedicated to supporting neonatal neurocritical care units. Fun fact, I have no clue that these things even existed before I met you. Kathy is the neuro NICU program consultant at Lucille Packard. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm-hmm. Children's hospital at Stanford university, but also spends a good amount of time traveling the globe, supporting her other neuro NICU programs from Thailand to Brazil. I think I saw you was South America one time, yes. Asia the other time at, outside of Brazil and Thailand Here we are though, it's gonna be great. She has published several peer reviewed articles on the subject of AEEG and neuro NICU programs, as well as the author of several chapters on nursing practice related to therapeutic hypothermia and the bedside use of AEEG. In 2018, Kathy helped to spearhead the development of the neuro NICU certification exam. Through Synapse Care, Kathy offers neuro-NICU program consultation, in-person workshops, online courses, and an annual nursing conference called The One, if that's not enough, right? <laughs> it focuses on the expanding role of nurses and other healthcare providers in the neuro-NICU. The One conference focuses on the difference that one clinician can make for one baby and their one brain in one moment. Mm-hmm. Kathy... Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. That was the best intro to anybody ever.
1: Oh, well, thank you. And I love how you read it with so much passion. It makes me excited about what I do too. I mean, it makes me excited to talk to them I'm like, man. These people
0: in neuro, neonatal neuro ICUs, I had no clue that existed. And I'm so excited because I know a couple nurses now in the professional careers that have gone on to the NICU and certainly other people and students that I have meet that want to follow their passion in NICU and perhaps they start in peds, perhaps they start in adults, but ultimately they want to help these little teeny tiny babies. Yeah, Yeah. So I'm really excited that you've joined us on the podcast.
1: Thanks for
0: the invitation. Absolutely. I want to start out though with your beginnings. So what
1: made you want
0: to become a nurse?
1: Oh, this is, a good, this is a good question that, you know, I have to take my back myself back to my 18-year-old self when I made this decision, um, which was many years ago. Um, I actually started out in a, a seven-year biomed pre-med program where I was actually, you know, on my way, like many are, um, to medical school and got through my first year and did not love it and did not love that grind. Um, happened to have a part-time job as a pharmacy tech um, was one of the first licensed clinical um, pharmacy techs in California way back when in the 90s. Yeah. And um, so I kind of started seeing what a physician's life might look like. Maybe, a, you know, I didn't exactly know what a physician's life would be, but started realizing, you know, it would be nine o'clock on a Friday night. And, you know, patients would be calling in like my inhalers out. And, you know, these physicians, would. I'm thinking, God, these physicians have been probably... On call at the hospital, have had some you know patients to see today, and now they're like calling in to in, you know give someone a refill on their inhaler, and I was like, I don't know if this is, I don't know. I just had this like idea, like I don't know if this is going to be for me. So I, I I took a pause in my college, and funny enough, my my aunt is a nurse, my grandma is a nurse, and I had never ever considered nursing. It was just <laughs> not on my roadmap, to be honest. And um, I had some amazing women that were in our church, and um, they were both nurses. And they were just old enough that I kind of respected them. And they said, "You should go to nursing school." And I was like, "Nursing school? What is even that? What is, what nursing, is school? nursing school?" School. They're like, "Oh my!" And then they they like completely plotted out my whole life. You're going to go to nursing school. You're going to like. Then you're going to like go on a mission trip as a nurse, and you're going to travel <laughs> the world, and maybe yes. you'll like go and like be in the military as a military nurse. And so I had this vision of this is what I was going to do. And I was like, well, that all sounds pretty cool. And you know, I figured, well, what do I have to lose? And, and honestly, that is how I ended up in nursing school. And the first rotation, I mean, of course, in the nineties programs were very impacted. And so I had to do my prereqs. Mm -hmm. I had to, you know, kind of get in the queue for getting in and getting admitted. I, it took me over a year waiting on a wait list to get in and um, so I'm one of those like five year, two year nurses where it's like after five years I had my ADN and um, and that's really how I started. I figured, well, if I can get in a program and I can and kind of see what the role of the nurse is right away, I'll, I'll know whether or not I'm in or I'm out. And yeah, thought then at that point, if I didn't think I loved it, then I might be passionate enough and maybe a little more mature to go back to medical school if that was really in the end the path I wanted to do. So long story, I guess, to just say I, it was a long, it wasn't my, like, I wasn't since I was five thinking I was going to be a nurse, but this first quarter we were, you know, in clinicals and I just was like, this is it. I mean, to be with a patient, to be the one that executes the orders, assesses the intervention, evaluates the response and is there and holds someone's hand and, and comforts them and helps them to be well, and um, that was, I was all in and I never looked back after that. I, I knew it was the right place for me.
0: Is, is that what you saw as well on, on your, on your experiences when you were in school? So a lot of times people have these experiences of nurses holding a hand, talking gently with people and they're like sold on nursing. Mm-hmm. So is that what you saw like in, in real life? And that's what kind of made you go like, yes, this is what nursing is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think because I had been pre-med. I think what I did a lot was watch what was the difference between medicine and nursing, and that that part of nursing, the being present, not just managing the patient, but being present, was the part that appealed to me.
0: That's awesome. You mentioned a five, was it five plus two program? You said like or, or pathway. So, so it's
1: actually a, it was a two-year ADN program, which okay. I, you know, like you think, oh, that's a two-year program, but you know, it was two years of prereq- prereqs, a year that of waiting, and a, a, lot and then of work. T- a lot of work, and then two years of nursing school in the actual nursing program. So at the end of five years of college, I okay. had my two-year degree. Uh, that's wow. why I, I call it a five-year path to a two- that, two-year that is degree. Definitely a,
0: wow. That's a I <sighs> that would exhaust me. I'm sorry. That would just exhaust me if I had to spend I mean, now granted, I'm getting my doctorate. And so my path of school has literally been like all my life. Yeah. But but thinking about, You know, five years for an ADN or any kind of degree just seems really daunting and just exhausting at the end of the day. You know,
1: I think I was lucky enough. A, I was young enough, and um, and you know, community college was affordable. I mean, I'd come out of a UC, University of California system, and I had already saw what that debt was going to look like. Hmm. And I think I just, I didn't really even know at that point that there were such things as BSNs and MSNs. I just knew I wanted to go to nursing school, and that was just that program happened to just be down the street from where I lived. So, you know, it was not until later that I realized, oh, there are these other things that you can do. And, you know, I mean this was the early nineties too. So there, the BSN programs were around, but weren't kind of that entry level role at that point. And jobs for ADNs were everywhere, everywhere. So they really weren't
0: looking into the BSN as a way of getting a job. It was a BSN. Okay. You have a job. Here's Mm -hmm. the next step in your career. Yes, Why I decided to do this.
1: Yeah, yeah, cuz I graduated in 94. So I started yeah. all of this in like the early 90s. Yeah, and I nursing
0: school. And then I noticed that you started your first job as a as a neonatal staff nurse. Mm-hmm. At a level 3 NICU. Can you describe what a level 3 NICU is?
1: Sure. Yeah, so um so similar to maybe like uh, trauma centers and things we have different levels of care. So level 1 and level 2 nurseries Um, take care of of babies who have lower acuity, may have only a little bit of need for oxygen, um, may just have maybe... rule out sepsis so they're maybe you know having some temperature instabilities but they don't necessarily need to be intubated or or need to have any um you know invasive ventilation so level one and level two are, are kind of maybe like community level nurseries and then now level three level four even um nurseries are kind of you know just go higher and higher acuity so level three would be able to do invasive ventilation Um, you know, and and pretty much everything, it may be that a level four has some specialty services, maybe they do ECMO or um, have some surgical specialties that aren't available in every um, hospital. So we used to say it would be like a level, um, level three was the highest. And then you'd be a level three plus ECMO. And so I think over time, we've kind of evolved and it's a level three, level four.
0: Wow. I mean, and that's such a stark difference to what we know of hospitals being level one, level two trauma centers. Right. It's kind of level reverse. Three. Yeah. It's kind of <laughs> reverse. You know, you're thinking, Oh, level three, they must not be that good. But really right. level three means that you have your stuff together and you're providing really crazy services to little tiny babies. Mm-hmm. Cause I noticed that you also worked for uh, a level three NICU, I think from 2002 to 2005, including ECMO services, yep. which I just recently learned ECMO this year being in an, in a COVID unit. I don't ever want to have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Let alone on tiny NICU babies. Adults scare me enough. Yeah. So I couldn't imagine hooking up tubes and stuff to a little teeny tiny three thing. kilos. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me just put this tube in you. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Oh, good. It can be pretty, they can be tiny, but they can be trouble. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> if they, I, I imagine that they probably have, you know, the ability to, to clot very easily mm-hmm. and dislodge very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, When you do these services, ECMO and things like that, do you have to keep a a little baby um, sedated at all?
1: Can't. Yeah. So we, for ECMO, it's gotten better over the years, depending on kind of how acute they are. Um, But yeah, we may have to paralyze and sedate um, for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Not as often as we used to. And, you know, when I first started, but yeah, we still do, especially for those kinds of kids. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you cannot have those tubes come out. You cannot have them. Yeah. No. And we still, you know, we still hype, you know, we still anti, you know, have their coags and do, you know, hypernize them and all of that. Awesome. Yeah. It's pretty much the same. Just their oxygenators are just much tinier. <laughs> we, we've advanced our technology.
0: We've made it tinier. It's great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. But I mean, those circuits are still really big compared to a but, baby.
0: And they're just, they're, they're even bigger for adults, which is, which is, you know, yeah. crazy in itself when you have things pumping into you.
1: Yeah, it's insane. Then it's you like,
0: became an, an infant services coordinator and case manager. Yeah. Um, what was that like? I don't think I've ever actually had a case manager coordinator on this podcast before. So that's kind of cool that you served that role. And I kind of want to know what, what that was like for you.
1: Yeah. So I think that was a, around five years or so into my career. I kind of took that jump. Um, I mean, to be honest, it sounds horrible, but I was kind of bored. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of normal, at least for me, it feels it's like it's been normal that, you know, every three to five years, I found myself in in some sort of new role in nursing, which is one of the things I love about nursing, hmm. is that you can literally reinvent yourself um, using your past skills in new roles. And so yes. this was an opportunity that came for me. Um, actually, I did go back and get my BSN because when I graduated after my five years, there were no jobs in 94. And so I needed to do something to stay busy, and so I went back and got my BSN, and one of the rotations I did was in public health, like most of us do in your BSN, and I got exposed to the world of early start programs, which are federally funded Part H programs through um, Medicaid, and um, well, I think it's been carved out of Medicaid now. But anyways, it's it's a federal program for babies who are at risk between the, the years of zero and three. And for me, it was amazing to see NICU babies at home.
0: Yeah. And I think that was yeah. the
1: coolest thing ever, was that here you hear about outcomes and you hear about the things that you do that make a difference in a baby's life and can change and alter their life. Um and I think seeing patients and babies and their families at home after the NICU just gave me a whole new perspective of, you know, yes, the the amazing, miraculous things that we accomplish in the NICU, but that that is really just the beginning of the journey for high risk and at risk and special needs families and kids.
0: Wow. I was also going to ask, you know, if you if you needed to have your bachelor's to take this care coordination. Yes. keep Yeah. Role.
1: Um, it required a PHN, which in our state okay. um, was par- was a certificate we got as part of our BSN. So, oh. uh, it was just um, so. I, so I think there may be other paths to a, a public health nurse certificate, but in California, that was how it how it rolled. Ah, public health. I was going with the pre hospital RN. Ah, no, yes, yeah, public
0: health yeah. nurse. Because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, at home in the NICU, perhaps that is you know pre hospital RN certification needs, but yeah, public health RN. Certification. That would be so nice if schools provided certifications on top of other things. When yeah, when you had your degree already and you had some experience, and you were getting a a new degree, and it kind of came with like all these certifications that you could get while you're also getting a degree. Yeah, that 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 would just be like amazing. If if I went to school for my master's and was able to obtain a certification during that program, man, I would probably be a different person today.
1: Well, I was kind of what happened. Podcast. Yeah, it kind of what happened to me when I did my master's. So when I did my master's, so and I just I kind of was in the school groove, right? So I did my five-year, two-year degree. Yeah. Then I did another, you know, three. I think we did it was two years to get my BSN bridge from ADN to BSN. And you went right to get your master's. And then I went straight in to get my master's. So <laughs> I had literally like finished my master's degree, and I had five years of nursing experience. But I did the clinical nurse specialist pass as my MSN. And so in my state, again, with California, after you finish that program, you could get a certificate and carry a license as a clinical nurse specialist. So as an advanced practice nurse.
0: I don't meet many clinical nurse specialists anymore either, um, at least in Pennsylvania. I don't know if they're utilized more so in California, but I was one that wanted to go down the trajectory of of a CNS like way back when. Mm -hmm. And then- the school didn't like admit me, um, but I think because their school was closing the, the program, but I think that they're so underutilized because there are certainly some CNS nurses that do work in the organization I work at, but I also think that they're underutilized because they can prescribe meds, mm-hmm. they can assess people, they can do so many things as well as MPs. So I think they're a great complement to things, but I'm not sure if, if California has a different, do you see a lot of CNS roles out there in California being
1: utile? Yeah, so it's a great question. So I think it is one of these kind of, I know there's a National Association of Clinical Nurse Specialists who have really studied, um, you know, what does the role of the CNS do for patients? And um, in California, we do for the NICU specifically, we actually have a protected role in the NICU. And so each uh, level three has to have at least one full-time FTE of a a NICU Clinical Nurse Specialist. this has been challenged because the programs are, are smaller and are not available. We do have two programs in California, luckily, and they're both available online, yeah. um, one, one through UCSF, so University of California, San Francisco, and then we have one at uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills, which is actually where I graduated from. Um, they took a pause for many years and then brought their um CNS program. I think it's actually a neonatal CNS if not I got a parent child um CNS so I had to do PEDs and maternal stuff too but um, I can't
0: I can't I'm 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 probably gonna I'm probably gonna freak out a lot about this neonatal specialty because I I never knew that it was so prevalent in nursing to be so specialized in like neonatal stuff. I, I know neonatal nurse practitioners and they're super specialized in what they do. But hearing the CNS role, hearing about like all these other things, you're kind of like, wow, this is, this is insane. Um, so, so you're going to want to It's a little gonna... secret over
1: here on the side. So many secrets.
0: <laughs> so many secrets in nursing that I'm just being allowed on.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure
0: they exist in my hospital, but I you know I'm in the adult world and also yeah. don't get to hear about, like, even when my students come back to me, they describe their day and they tell me what kind of adventures they've had. It's never like I went to the neonatal ICU and this was the best thing ever. And I met a CNS. Mm. It was a neonatal specialized CNS. So I think you just introduced a new role to students, at least my students anyway, about what a neonatal CNS is and even um, what case managing means and what all all of those roles mean as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the cool thing about, I mean, I I just did a recent post on one of my channels about this was, which was, you know, I'm a NICU nurse now what? Because I think a lot of times we think NICU, it's going to be acute care, you know, always in the hospital and that those skills won't ever translate to other types of work. And, um, you know, it, it, but it's not true. I mean, we can do like, I I've, i mean, I feel like maybe I've dabbled in all of the different things. I don't know if there's anything I've left untouched yet, but definitely, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know you're only partly down my CV, so we'll see. We'll figure something out that I need to do next, but Um, no, but I think it's been exciting for me and, and hopefully inspiring, you know, inspiring to others of like, yeah, you can be a NICU nurse and you can, I mean, it is an exciting, amazing job to be in the NICU, but you can become a nurse educator. You can become a clinical nurse specialist. You can become an NNP, a manager, a transport nurse, an ECMO perfusionist. You can do all these different things. And then even like me, go outside the hospital, follow these kiddos at home, um, Get involved in policy and advocating for some, you know, special services for, for our babies. So yeah, there's, there's lots to do as a NICU nurse. Have you done
0: policy and, and, and things like that?
1: Yeah. So my biggest work I've done in policy, um, is really around the chemical environment of the hospital and, you know, the products we use on small baby skin. Um, oh, so yeah, I, I, Really got really passionate about that. That was actually the first company I created was called Green NICUs, was like how to actually green the NICU.
0: That's such a great idea. I'm going to bring this to my hospital. I, I I have no clue what we do. I'm, I'm sure we take care of things like this, but you know what? I have no clue I, either because I'm not in NICU, but that's such a great thing to be really passionate about, I think, and advocate for, because yeah. if you see something, and this is along, along the same lines of, People who have ideas and want to be innovators or want to be inventors, see something and then create that change, you know, that's such a great parallel to, you know, even just greening something up, right? Mm-hmm. Seeing something that's a problem and just saying, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna reduce our waste, we're gonna make things healthier and better.
1: Yeah. That's such yeah. a great And oh, especially yeah. for little small babies, right? Where you know. think about chemicals that bioaccumulate and your body mass is only a kilo. I want to just protect all the little babies. Yeah. This this, this is where I
0: am (laughs) in life, right? Okay. Take care of adults, but I just want to protect the little babies. That's right. That's right. Me
1: too. Me too.
0: The next position, well, that I'm going to talk about, it it might not be perhaps the next position that that, that you've done, but you were a clinical research nurse. And Mm. this Mm -hmm. intrigues me tremendously as I try to get my students more into clinical research, evidence-based practice, lit reviews. Kind of like, you know, being the owners of all of the ideas and all the information because at the end of the day, it really matters and it really makes you much more better yeah. of, of a nurse. So what was, what was this job like? Tell me all about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was kind of just a, a lucky opportunity that came my way when I was the program coordinator at Lucille Packard um, for the NeuroNICU. And we were doing a, a multi-center trial in California where we were actually eval- pre-FDA evaluating a new product um, for transport that would allow us to provide therapeutic hypothermia for babies with brain injury and asphyxia. And so we had nine multi-center, it was a nine site multi-center trial. And so I was, so, you know, I knew the PI, the physician PI for that um, um, principal investigator. And so she said, Kathy, can you help me to kind of do, you know, follow up with the different sites, make sure that they understand the protocols, educate them, help with data collection, and then, um, you know, eventually helped publish some of that work that helped this device get FDA approved.
0: Do you know about how many patients were in that trial?
1: Yeah, so we had a hundred. Okay, and that's a lot. Because
0: how big are a lot of babies? How, how big are NICUs? <laughs> yeah, so
1: a hundred. So a hundred uh, babies. That was just enough to give us, t- you know, the statistical power we needed to be able to prove that actually using a, a servo-regulated device was better than what we were doing before, which was passively cooling babies. And they were getting very cold um, when yeah. we just turned off their heaters. Um, so, yeah, so a NICU can range in size from, from, you know, like a level one, level two NICU might have 10 beds okay. um, to, you know, these monster units that are 120, 150 bed NICUs at level fours. Wow. I
0: didn't know that that
1: would exist in one unit. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. But yeah. I love, I love that you mentioned that because describing a multi-center trial is really important because it's nine different hospitals mm-hmm. that are participating in one clinical trial to see if it works. It's yeah. really important to do these things because you have to broaden your research mm-hmm. when you do these trials because you're going to get the best evidence. And I love that you mentioned... 100 babies was where we had to read our, our number for a statistical measure. Yeah. Because when, when you know, I think even in like your bachelor's prepared programs, you're going to have to read research and interpret it somehow yes. it's at a very basic level for most programs, but it's still very important to understand why we've only have 30 patients in a trial mm-hmm. or why we have 2457.5 yeah yeah in the <laughs> trial because it gives us enough statistical power to help prove our our point or disprove our point which is yes. what we're for.
1: yeah and especially in this case where the condition we you know we couldn't just study these babies at at our hospital because we only admit 25 of these babies in a year that would be inborn and outborn babies and if say only 12 of them in a year that would take us 10 years to get yeah. that. So we had to reach out to say 10 of other centers so that we could actually finish the research in any time that would be valuable and meaningful so that we could find the answer. And so I think that's also why we need multicenter trials, not only to make it more generalizable where we can you know have a more diverse population, but also just to get the numbers, especially in these rare, um, these rare diseases where they're not happening every day. Yeah, Yeah, and so it's very low. And so, were you
0: cooling these babies based on a rare occurrence of something?
1: So, um, perinatal asphyxia, or, you know, having not enough oxygen right at birth um, for whatever various reasons that might be. It happens about, in our country, about one in every 4,000 to 6,000 births. So that's that's a lot if if you think about it. It's a lot, it's a lot. So it's like, but we had to get, so this was a transport cooling trial. So sometimes the babies are born at your hospital, but this was babies who were born somewhere else at an outlying facility and our teams would have to get to them, assess them, determine if they were eligible for this therapy, and then consent the family in the field and then use this device in transport back. So it was just, you know, that narrow population of outborn babies who met the criteria for the therapy.
0: Yeah, but, our, but this is so important because it serves something that is very tricky to treat, I imagine, yes, it, yes. especially in, in the field you know and having the transport babies that need to be cooled for a specific period of time is difficult enough like I can go in into my world and think about adults that we cool for yeah. our problems right and they're like well let's take them off cooling and take them that MRI and I'm like I don't think we should do that right now like hear me out I think you yeah. might up, you know and they're like oh you're right because once you take somebody off of the cooling aspect mm-hmm. if you, you have nothing wrong with with Having your temperature regulate itself, you're going to warm itself back up. Yes, and that can lead to all sorts of problems. Yes, relationships, <laughs> all these, all these issues that you just don't want. So this sounds like it was such a huge trial, e- even if it was just a very rare baby occurrence. Mm-hmm. Such an important thing to implement.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Because if we know the therapy is valid, if I mean this is really for any therapy, if the therapy is is good, then we should do our best to deliver it in an efficient and effective way and target it just right. So temperature is a therapy and if you and you can make all sorts of problems if you get them too cold or you get them too hot and so our targeted temp we had to keep them in range and so Getting them to target temp is one thing. Keeping them at target temp in a is a whole different thing. Yeah, and, um, and doing that in the field is, you know, it's hard enough to do that in the unit, but doing it in the field. So it was an important trial because the, many of these babies are outborns to cooling facilities and not every NICU cools. So, you know, we, because it's not so common and it's, it is kind of a, it's a newer technique that we do in the NICU.
0: That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like something that every neonatal neuro NICU should do. You yes. know, I, I can imagine that there's many issues perhaps with getting these machines in or allowing them to try all these things. But I feel like that's just so important because target temp. So students learn target temps for post cardiac arrest mm-hmm. and sometimes for neuro patients, if like mm-hmm. in the adult world, excuse me, if if your tbi is so bad that we can't control it we yeah. will paralyze sedate, and cool you mm-hmm. and we don't really learn about nicu babies need ne- needing to be cooled excuse me we kind of learn just that there's this baby yeah <laughs> born they might have problems but we're not going to really delve into it and i don't know why that is because i feel like mm-hmm. this would be such a viable educational opportunity i'm probably gonna have to hit you up when um when when like we're done here and i have students again and like some yeah. Nick nicu like they'd be cool to do like a webinar of like what this means to little babies cuz i don't think that i don't think that that my students at least get it but anywho, um so on this trial was that where you kind of also saw patterns of um think patterns of eegs and also mm-hmm. patterns for what you're doing now
1: yeah, so I actually got that job because, um, so I got the job at Lucille Packard to help them create their neuro because I had already been seen as an ex, I had already become, I don't know what the right word is, I had already become known as an expert in reading baby brain waves. And so wow. um, so I had um, worked with them previously. Um, so one of the jobs that I landed along the way was a clinic, what they call clinical application specialist, these are the nurses who, who get hired by medical device companies or pharmaceutical companies, and who go to hospitals to in service about new equipment. And so, yes. yes, yep. So, like, we've you know, anytime you have that sales rep come in, you know, and they happen to also be a nurse, you're like, yes, I love you, <laughs> because you, I know. And the questions they would always ask me is like, oh, you're a nurse, that's cool, but are you a NICU nurse? And you're, and you're like, yeah, I'm a NICU nurse, yeah. And then they would say but are you still working as a nurse? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, then you're like, at that time I could say yes, yes. And yes, I had a lot better street cred. You've, you've passed our tests. You've passed, then, then they're like, okay, now we'll listen to you. <laughs> like, you can now teach us about this incubator. Um, <laughs> but so I got lucky um, to get exposed to some opportunities where I could work for industry. So medical device companies, and I actually did travel around the globe teaching about baby incubators, and. They also brought, this company brought on a brain monitor um, product and I got trained in that and spent, I don't know, five, six years learning that and traveling and teaching and then started my own company after that to keep teaching that. So that was really how it got started. And Stanford was one of our customers and that's how I got to know the team there. And many years later, they called me and asked me to come and help. That's awesome. Now all
0: about networking and connections. (laughs) It's all about that. And it's all about asking for forgiveness and not asking for permission in some ways. Yes. I teach my students that all the time. And they're like, yes, that is exactly what it is. And I'm like, yes, (laughs) it is. Just do it. And if somebody says no, that's the worst they're going to tell you. Say, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. But get to know everybody. Get to know people. You know, get get to know what they do. I often tell my students, find someone that you think is awesome in nursing and ask for their CV. Mm. And just read what they've done. And see if it might be something that you want to do in the future because our vision and view sometimes of nurses is very siloed
1: Yes. in terms of,
0: quote unquote, what is possible. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We often think that we need to go work in a med surge unit or in a critical care environment or something else. And clearly you can work for a couple of years in something that, that you love and then make it into something so much more like your own company. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, full circle moment
1: absolutely and absolutely. what
0: your choice you know quickly though yeah cooling a, cooling a baby okay D- do you put a hat on them because <laughs> we we wrap our adults in like these cooling wraps mm-hmm. how do you cool a, a little baby
1: yeah yeah so um we have different blankets so similar to probably what you're used to gamar and you know arctic suns and um Ticotherms and, uh, blanket trolls. So we use a cooling blanket. Um, just, just like you would probably do. We use, if you, if you think of like, um, I'm trying to think of like a limb, like you might wrap, um, like if somebody goes to the OR and you kind of wrap a limb with a blanket or something, that's basically the size we use for babies. Um, and so, yeah, we do, we, we, um, you know, we, we nest them, we would say. Um, we put them kind of in some blanket rolls and then put the the cooling blanket around them. And then there are some newer devices that actually are kind of more like a swaddle blanket where we put the cooling fluid through that and then we wrap it around them and secure them to get as much coverage. Um, interesting, you would say, do we put it on their head um, is because there was a product that was out there originally called the Cool Cap. and so it was actually like a very, very cold shower cap wow. because they thought,, we, maybe if we just cooled the cortex, that yeah. maybe we wouldn't have to give them systemic hypothermic hypothermia. Um, and that we could maybe, you know, treat the cortex itself. But it did work. The problem is that sometimes we have deep gray matter injury. and so without having oh. kind of whole body, um, Hypothermia—that we were not actually targeting um, all of the potentially uh, injured areas. So now we do full-body cooling, where we take their core down to thirty-three-five um, centigrade, and that's where we hold them for seventy-two hours. Wow,
0: I would have never thought deep, deep. Uh, what, what you just mentioned—I'm having gray a- matter. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much because words right. are hard. <laughs> Injury in little neonates, although mm-hmm. I know it's possible, but but but. By cooling the head, you, you kind of don't really think about it. Yeah. Um, but perhaps that's why we also don't do adults. But I can also see adults being challenging with so many other things that go on because you're talking about some t- t- treating, treating this little baby for. Asphyxia, whereas we treat kind of adults in like bleeds or TBIs right. or things like that. So it's completely different. In yes. Terms of what you're treating for.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. We're we're actually they call it hypoxic ischemic enceph- encephalopathy. So it's usually you know there's a setup of hypoxia, but then there's also the the ischemia that happens. So it's not like a stroke or a bleed in that way. Um right. It's really more of a kind of a perfusion problem that's now resolved and now. What happens with that injury is that the, um, we call it, there's a primary phase of injury and a secondary phase of injury. So the primary phase usually happens in utero. We can't really do anything about that. But what we try to do is to intervene with cooling to minimize the secondary cascade of, in- of energy failure, where the brain tries to start like increasing its metabolic rate in order to clean up the mess. And that ends up causing so many problems. So we cool the cool the jets and cool the brain and yeah. cool down the metabolic process and kind of slow down those inflammatory pathways um that the body's going to try to do Yeah. and um that's how it works. It's so
0: fascinating to me. Obviously because I'm a neuro nurse, right? Yes. But I you would also love that part. because because I'm not a I'm not a baby nurse, right? Yeah. So me picturing this like these processes with metabolism i'm like yes like the babies are so hyper like hyper you know into yeah. everything when they're born you know just mind is just blown right now in, in learning this concept and even something that like to consider with adults you know mm-hmm. what I mean? <sighs> mind yeah. they do babies do well usually after after cooling
1: yeah yeah, so so the reason why so cooling actually is pretty new in the NICU. I mean, we've only really been doing it widely since about 2008. Um there were about a decade worth of well there was animal data that support that's helped us to think it might be safe for babies, that it might work against the injuries. Obviously, we we need those animal models first. Um and we have, we have neonatal we use neonatal mice and um, Pigs and lambs; um, those are the neonatal models we use um, in order to validate things um, in in clinical research at before, I guess it would be preclinical research or bench yeah. research. Yep. Um, and then when we translate that to human trials, so starting in about ninety nine, we started um, doing the clinical trials for cooling, and we didn't know if it worked for humans. So it took about about a decade to get about five to eight hundred babies enrolled around around the US, as well as there were some trials in the UK that happened around the same time. So we didn't know if it would work. Honestly, we'd spent decades trying to teach people to keep babies warm because that decreased mortality. And so babies with that have hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or HIE, they, they were about a third would die, about a third would have very poor outcomes, and about a third would recover with either mild or you know kind of completely normal outcomes. That's great. And so yeah, so that that's kind of like a third a third a third. It's probably similar in adults without interventions, right? If you have this brain injury, you know, like some will do okay, some will die, and in the middle you've got
0: Yeah. I mean, I think for babies you don't have all of those pre-existing things. Right. Um adults, you, know, you have like so many things that also happen such as diabetes that just create right. like chaotic pathways firing left and right. Nice. And just a myriad of, of, of other problems if you come in with other problems associated with it, right? So it's it's kind of like you're preventing other bombs from going off in adults. Yes. Whereas yeah. in a baby, it's just like we this is, this is a little bomb. Yeah, a little <laughs> baby we're, bomb. And we're gonna keep it, we're gonna keep it from going off.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the research that we did from the nineties until the two thousands actually showed that we not only reduced mortality. But that we also reduced morbidities and oh, disabilities. Great. Yes. So it's not just that could we save more babies? So could we reduce that 30% mortality? But then you have babies who have long-term disabilities. So yes. it was important that we showed that cooling did both that's death awesome. and disability. And it reduced it by about another 20, 25, 4% or so. That's a lot.
0: Yeah. People listening baby. who have not taken a, a any kind of public health course um, that's a lot. I know 24% doesn't seem like a lot, but even, you know, curves of like 2% in yeah. terms of morbidity or mortality is a lot. And so 24%, it's like, yeah. you just, you just solved a world crisis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. time, you know? yeah. And I'm sure for little babies, that is a world crisis that has just decreased tremendously and shows a lot of promise to as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the things we're doing now with cooling are um, trying to expand it. So in order for it to be effective, we have to start it early. So it has to start within the first six hours of life. then we continue it for 72. So identification, that transport piece I talked about, all super important. Yeah. Um, the other thing we've looked at is what happens if we cool after six hours in the first 24 hours of life? Does it still have some benefit? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, again, is something better than nothing. And then we had a cutoff of 36 weeks gestation as the age at which we were willing to trial this on human babies. Um, some trials went as low as 35. But we only had six babies that were in that 35 to 36 week gestation range so now we have a premature um, cooling trial and now um, we're also we're just about ready to finish that one and then we're doing another trial which is for mild hie because the original studies were only for moderate or severe hie and there's different grades of hie that we see and we because we didn't know it was going to work so we didn't want to put families and babies through a trial but now we have this limitation of we don't know if it will work for those babies. Hopefully it does. You know, Hopefully it does.
0: I don't know that cooling has shown promise to a lot of like adult neuro patients. So mm-hmm. we used to, we used to cool a lot more than what we do now. Now we, we've gone into the targeted temperature management mm-hmm. and that's different from cooling for everybody listening because hypothermia is hypothermia, hypothermia you're cooling very, very cold 32 to 34 degrees um, depending on who you're dealing mm-hmm. with that stuff and targeted temperature management is you're really targeting a temperature in normothermia so Mm -hmm. somewhere between like 36 to 37 Mm -hmm. you know range for a period of time so you don't want them to kind of have this fever um or you don't want them to go super cold because we've learned over the course of you know many years i'm sure that if you go too cold and then you warm back up no matter how slow (laughs) you warm these people back up they have such drastic shifts in so many things, like yes. their glucose, like their um, magnesium, potassium, things mm-hmm. like that, that create danger to their bodies, and they don't do well. Yep. And Thanks so, babies—that's good to know. It's because, and so with targeted temperature management, you kind of keep them, you know, normothermic, and with items like the Arctic Sun, which is what a lot of hospitals use, and mm-hmm. the around there's other things as well. But with the use of, of like an Arctic sun, uh, you can kind of keep them and the water will still cool, cool down to like two degrees, right? It's still freezing yeah. cold water, but you're not allowing the body to, to cool so much that when you warm back up, it's going to create all this chaos basically. Right, right. So that was a long description of target temperature management versus hypothermia. Great well, that's funny,
1: so I'm putting on a conference in a couple of weeks, and that's one of the talks we're going to talk about is targeted temp management for babies who have an arrest, you know, similar oh, yeah. to kind of what we see, because there are babies who go down in mom's rooms while they're still at the hospital. So we have a very defined time. We know when something happened, but we don't know if cooling for 72 hours, which we would do for a perinatal event if it will really work. And so we're actually have, what we do know is that hyperthermia, like you said, letting somebody run hotter is gonna increase their metabolic rate. And that is never good. And so using our cooling blankets to kind of manage normal thermia for this population is I think where we're gonna start. And then um, maybe these other trials of hypothermia for other populations will, you know, continue to expand the use of that for other babies. Sorry, that's my dog. You That's can hear okay. him.
0: <laughs> I I also allow humans and dogs on my podcast for the mm. um, perfect. Right. I mean, I feel like it it adds to the natural nature of me being not awkward on these things and just being like, oh, it's fine. I have I I just talked last podcast about my friend Shelby bringing her son, and he talked about Thanksgiving dinner in the middle of like May. I was like, okay, wow. Anywho, um, Fun. so really quickly, yeah, back to um, your job with product sales in a yeah. way, but like mm-hmm. education, Yep. how do people get involved in a job like that? So students are, I mean, I, I have them all the time They They kind of want to do their clinical experience, but then they also kind of want to do something else. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes clinical education of product sales is a great step. Yes. So how, how did you get involved and what are some best tips?
1: Yeah, oh, that's a great tip. So it's a great question. And I get asked this a lot. Um, especially if you want to travel or, well, like before the pandemic, I would say, and maybe soon, shortly, to be back to our normal reality, um, is this is a great job for people who want to travel and see the world because there's there's lots of things you get to do with this. Um, For me, gosh, what would be some of my best tips for this? I mean, to me, it's really about networking. So when you are in your job and there is a sales rep who comes in, or maybe you're... Um, you know, a nurse at a bedside getting trained on this new piece of equipment, get to know those people who are coming in. Obviously, they are doing the job that you might want to do someday. So you could say, oh, my gosh, how did you get involved in this? Or, like, you know, are they hiring? Or what kind of experience do you need? Um, Now, as a NICU nurse, I only want to do NICU products. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do anything that has to do with anybody big. Um, So, like, like
0: knowing knowing your specialty and knowing what you're good at.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I happen to be the nurse educator in my unit. And so I was organizing product trials and that's how I got to become you know, good colleagues with many of our different vendors who would come in to bring us different products. If you're a bedside nurse, maybe you volunteer to be on a new products committee because at the new products Mm -hmm. committee is where those reps will come in to talk about the four or five different options that your unit might trial. Um, maybe you volunteer to be on the value analysis team, the, the VAT teams, you know, in different hospitals. So I think even as a bedside nurse, you can find ways to insert yourself into these processes. You know, ask if you can be a train-the-trainer, you know, like if you're bringing Epic, you know, Epic train-the-trainers, right, to roll something out. Any of those kinds of experiences, I think, give you the confidence to to translate that to something else. So be a train the trainer. Um, You know, if your hospital does annual skills labs, skills days, mandatories, you know, where you have to do those skills that you have to go, be a volunteer um, to be one of the station leaders or the station presenters, you know, whether it's the glucose, you know, point of care glucose machine, Mm -hmm. or if it's the chest tubes, or, you know, you'll learn that so well. And you'll learn how to teach quick and be on, you know, on your, on your feet and, I think all of those are, are ways to gain, you know, inner, you know, little mini steps towards being able to translate that into something, you know, bigger. Because it, really, it's always the same. You need to, you know, know your procedures. You need to know the product, and then you know how to, you know, know know how it interfaces with the people. And that's really what your job is: is to make sure people know know the ins and outs of it. Those that was so many like little gold nuggets. <laughs>
0: That you just like gave like everyone. Oh man, people listening, go back to this and write these things down. That's right. Because play it at, have, half speed. Play at half speed. Play half speed because we get excited. We talk fast. I know. So, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's fine. I talk very fast myself, and um, but. These tips are 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 so valuable for new nurses because they don't hear it a lot from nurses at the bedside because they, that's what they, they only experience those nurses, right? Yeah. They don't often experience the product specialists or the liaisons from the rehab clinic mm-hmm. or people like that that also impact patient care.
1: Yeah. And are other
0: jobs in nursing but have not experienced those yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is and your preceptor may been. have never done these things either. So
0: no, I I'm have giving not. you all the secrets. See? <laughs> Kathy ran over the secrets. This is (laughs) is one of the reasons why I launched this podcast was to really help bring not only more clinical experience to student nurses, no matter what student you are, whether it be like an associate's bachelor's master's PhD, Mm DNP, whatever, but also to hear from those that have been in this profession for a number of years. And it could be from two to 50, I don't care. And just to kind of pick their brain about what else is out there, Mm -hmm. you know, because you don't often hear about those things and and how to get involved, and what skills this person has learned to help get, you know, those things yeah. enabled. So thank you very much for that.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, it's, a, and it's a fun job. I mean, that was, and I did it on the side. I guess that's the other thing is I didn't have to leave my full-time staff job to be able to take on some of these other jobs. Oh, that's and great. so, yeah, I was, you know, that's, I was working that's three That's very days. important as well, because double yeah. your
0: income. Double I, your income. Man, I want to do <laughs> a, a, a whole thing on, you know, nurses and like the, the additional parts of nursing, right. Mm -hmm. So doubling your income is one of them. Having side jobs is okay. I tell my sometimes I'm like bedside nursing is my base salary, right? Yes. And I do other things (laughs) that help bring in residual income to help make money.
1: No one talks about it. Beautiful way to say it. Yeah. That's my base. And that's, and I also felt like it, People used to say, Oh, you're so risky, especially when I first started some of my other businesses. You know, they're like, Oh, you're so risk you're such a risk taker. And I'm like, How can I be a risk taker when I have the best plan B in the world? Right. You know, like right. I-, I was still working as a nurse and I, you know, slowly you know, step down from full-time to two days a week, you know, but I did it gradually. So I was still working three days a week. And then I would give the medical device company, I'd say, here are eight days that I could travel. I can do two or three days here. I could do two days here. And then on my days off, I would hop on a plane and fly somewhere, do trainings for two days, fly back home. And then I would, you know, go back to my regular job and, you know, I could always give my shifts away to other per diem nurses who who wanted to work extra shifts. And then, you know, and so I just slowly flexed down um, using PTO time and then switching to per diems um, to give me that flexibility where I, I didn't have to be full time at the hospital anymore for benefits. And
0: yeah, that that, kind of that is great key advice as well. I think a lot of times the nurses feel like they have to leave the bedside and do something else or they have to leave the bedside and go travel nursing if they want to travel. But this is another very fruitful career yes. path that you don't have to leave your current job and benefits for and kind of experience something new and experience in a way that you don't have to automatically move into a full-time position right. doing these things. You can kind of like take your time, feel the water, maybe you don't, really don't like to travel at the end of the day. You know, maybe right. you business travel is just not with me. It's not but as fun as it sounds. It's, it's exhausting. tell <laughs> you that much, you know, but when you meet people at the end of the day, I think that part is very fun. Yes, very fun. You know, and also, you know, I think I think the theme of this talk is probably perhaps networking and neurobabies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Day, networking is the key aspect of your career. Networking.
1: Yeah. People. Yeah. I mean, if I mean I I say, you know, for me, I can I can now looking almost thirty years back, I can pinpoint those points, the things I did, the network. That I created that changed my career path. You know, wow. I can I can really see it now in in retrospect. And at the time, I didn't know, and I just said yes to a lot of things that and that's okay. And that's okay. And and it was really you know they were all amazing opportunities. But um, but networking, if I look back, my networking with uh, exhibitors and vendors at shows. You know, if you go to a conference, and hopefully there'll be conferences again here I'm soon. Open is that when you go is don't waste your time, you know, at the coffee bar, go to talk to the exhibitors, Mm. like ask them about their products, ask them, you know, what's coming next. You know, are you going to do a focus group? Like make friends with the exhibitors. Don't not, you know, like don't make people like don't make eye contact with them. And they, you know, like, oh my God, they're going to call me a hundred times. Like no way, like embrace that you especially if it's a product you really love yeah I mean it's so easy to teach about something you love so it just connect 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 and I will say those are the places that my my career shifted through those relationships for sure that's awesome
0: I remember being at NTI in 2018 and seeing the first nursing innovation table and I was like what is this wow they were like submit your idea blah 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 and I was like I didn't think there was a thing. Like I thought like because I have a patent on a neck brace, right? And I thought, well, there's nothing really for me. It's all a medical heavy focused world in inventing and, you know, with patients and stuff and I didn't know the avenues and this was a this was a, a trajectory of like from 2012 on, right? And then you and then you meet people and my life shifted dr- drastically after meeting Dale that was the company that I, I met with. And then I think it was Boston University or somewhere mm-hmm. up there that I met this person who was leading nurse innovation up there. And I thought, what a cool job. Wow. Like, that is my dream job, right? This would be a director of nurse in- innovation somewhere of yeah. like getting all these processes. But regardless, making that first connection led me on to doing so much at my hospital, so much outside of my hospital, allowed me to take risks safely, just like you mentioned, mm-hmm. and has brought me onto this path where I don't know where it's going because I'm still in school, so I'm not going to worry about it, but I have options in the future.
1: So Yeah, yeah. Well, and you never know. I mean, I think with with everything, experience stacks, you know, just stacks on top of each other. Yep. And you never know like how the little puzzle's turning out, but I don't know. I would just say trust it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did these positions then lead you into becoming this chief clinical advisor for two companies. Mm -hmm. And, and what made you want to be this advisor and just be like, you know what, I'm going to advise for you. And you're going to want to hire me as your chief clinical advisor. You don't know this yet, but you're going to, (laughs) I can imagine you doing that to someone too. (laughs)
1: Like, here's, here's me. I'm really good at this. Here's me. You don't know me yet, but you will. (laughs) Luckily, they did already know me. So I didn't have to pitch them too hard um, on that. But um, I, yeah, I think it was just an evolution. you know. So being involved, especially in small startup medical companies really gives you an opportunity to see uh, so many different parts of the um, process. And, and like you've learned, I'm sure being an inventor, um, I, I have um, invented three or four products that are sold in hospitals now too. So you get this experience with regulatory and um, you kind of understand marketing and you I mean you in you just kind of build the skill set over time mm-hmm. and um and and then these other opportunities just come to you because they're definitely um industry um that makes products for the hospital or for the NICU or for whatever your specialty is, they need people who know what it's like to work that job. Yes. And they they can imagine that an inventor has described the problem just right. But when you start getting in there and working with engineers and and you need to translate the clinical problem to engineering drawings, you need somebody there to kind of guide the way. And so I think it's just been an accumulation of experience um, working with industry, you know, almost 20 years that has put me just in the right place to, to be able to support these companies who have a need for someone who can kind of, you know, fill that role. Yeah. Outside
0: of that, you've started a business.
1: Yeah. And (laughs) I want
0: to know, well, I I really want to pick your brain about it because it's really important to some of my students to become business owners and CEOs Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, you know, and I, I, I know we've talked about why you started the business, but how did you start the business? What kind of roadmap led like led you to where you're at now any kind of pitfalls or lessons learned along the way, things like that. Yeah, yeah, like that's a whole, that's a semester. whole itself, that's right? a whole
1: se- that's a whole separate call all on its own, but right. one that I love talking about, and I know you do too. Um, so, I mean, I guess I would say I was an accidental entrepreneur. Um, you know, I started out with these opportunities when I was still working at the bedside and, you know, I just considered it, you know, just some extra fun money, like you said, ways to double your income. And, yeah, I could have taken a second job as a NICU nurse. I did that, too, where I, you know, worked per diems at a second hospital. But that got to be a little old after a while for me because it was a second set of holidays, a second set of weekend requirements. And, yeah, it's, you know, something that you already knew well but it didn't, it didn't really appeal to me for the long run. I did it for a couple of years here and there. Um, so I liked that it was so different um, that I picked up these other jobs. And most of the time, if you're just picking up little freelance consulting jobs, those are gonna, you're gonna be paid as a 1099 um, independent contractor. Yes. And so, you know, that's no different than you getting 1099 interest from your bank account. It's just extra income that basically is, untaxed and comes to you as just income. So for years, I had ten ninety nine income, I had my W two income from the hospital. and and I just kept kept that going for for a long, long time. And at some point my CPA said to me, you know, you kind of made more doing consulting this year than you did as your W two um, at the hospital. And I said, really? Oh my, God. you know, I mean, I'm really good with numbers, but I I don't, I'm not very good at details Um, or taxes. taxes. (laughs) And when you make more as a 1099 person and you have spent it all (laughs) as a 20 something, um, You have a very big tax bill, which you know you have. uh, No one told me I should be saving fifty percent of what I was earning. So no one does, um, right? Nobody. So that's my number one tip: save fifty percent of your ten ninety nine. If you're going to take a consulting job, Um, this is why they should pay you more. Don't take the rate that is your normal rate because that rate includes benefits and other yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say your goal is to take your normal hourly wage and double that if you're going to do consulting for anyone. Good to know. That is because you're going to have to pay half of that in taxes. So you need to make double. Otherwise, you're only making 25%. Um, so that's really how it started. My, I, had a, I had a great CPA who basically told me it was time to create an S-corp to incorporate And to get the advantages of of what um, the tax advantages that would come from from having a corporation. And so it really wasn't until I was making more money than I was on my W-2 that it made sense to do it. Because there are costs involved in that. You now have to do a second um, tax return. That also costs money. Um, You have to start holding books and doing minutes. And there are rules to um, being classified as a corporation. So... Um, So that's kind of how it started. Um, And because my consulting kept picking up higher and higher and higher, I just slowly kind of eased my way out of W2 kind of employee status and kind of moved myself. If you're familiar with the Robert Kiyosaki book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or the Cash Flow Quadrant, I really moved myself from an employee to a self-employed person. And um, I had a business, a corporation, but I wouldn't say that I had a system that would allow me to kind of duplicate myself um, for many years later. But, but an S-corp is a good place to start um, when, you're, when you do have um, a significant amount of kind of consulting income coming in or any other freelance or side hustle work. That's awesome.
0: I forget. I'm going to have to put the link in, into this uh, podcast episode. But there is a mentorship program that somebody had mentioned in a in a previous episode about if you're if you're wanting to get into business, it's like free consulting with business owners that are successful, and nice. they help you be successful in business as well. And I think that a lot of times, it's not just like you you have to start your own business, right? You don't have to start an S Corps, you don't have to start an LLC. But understanding, you know. As a student, number one, you're going to have to pay student loans Yes. You know, because a lot of students have student loans and that becomes something to, to navigate as well, especially mm-hmm. on taxes. Number two, if you take any kind of consulting job, just as you've mentioned, it's going to pay in 1099 as opposed to W-2s because you're not a full-time employee with benefits there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But those can work to your advantage because if you're traveling, if you're doing all these things, they become kind of like tax write-offs. Yes. Right? And you can kind of navigate the pathways that way. So you can mm-hmm. kind of like really creatively navigate your financial pathway to you know playing the system a little bit in a fair way right now yeah. nothing's illegal about it but also it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be as daunting as what I think people have made it become because a lot of times people think I'm graduating I have loans to pay and I have to afford an apartment and all this other stuff yeah, yeah. I I try to tell my students and this is not financial advice <laughs> I try <laughs> to tell my students to look into Oprah's debt diet it's like this, it's like the circle thing. And there's little parts that are navigated off and it's kind of breaks down where your income should be spending on. Mm-hmm. Nice. And that's from Susie Orman, who is a financial person. Get your information from her. because She's really good. But that is, you know, one, one piece that I would tell my students is to kind of get yourself on a budget. doesn't matter which one it is, mm-hmm. but be smart about it. Because where you take your job, you know, I'm sure in California, if you've already lived there, it's fine. But if you're someone coming from, I don't know, Wisconsin to go live in California, the cost differences are
1: drastic. Yeah. And
0: something to really be be considerate of because, you know, at the end of the day, you're still gonna have to pay taxes. Yeah.
1: And I think it's, I think what's nice is always work on a percentage because then if you do move to like a place like California where the cost of living is higher, but the income is higher, maybe, you know, like if you're making $60 an hour as a nurse versus you came from Florida where you're making 32, well, Mm -hmm. but your cost of living, you know, so if if you think of it as a percentage of the pie where it's like, I'm always going to save 10% or I'm always going to invest 10% or I'm going to... Um, you know, you know, I always allocate X amount towards my student debt. That way, if your income goes up and you're saying, okay, 30% is my housing and, 10, you know, whatever it is that works out to your pie, that's right for you. Then that way, you know, you can kind of flex that. And then if you move backwards to another place that then you, you kind of keep those ratios the same. And I, awesome. I think that would be helpful um, for people to yeah. Yeah. That that is such valuable information for people to kind of lean in on because if you're like, Oh, I'm in Florida making thirty two bucks and I'm gonna come to California and make seventy five dollars an hour, you're like, Woo woo, yeah. like, I'm that's gonna boring. be right. You're like, I'm buying a Tesla tomorrow and <laughs> you know, but it's like, well, Maybe there's a better way to spend that extra money or that some of that money will automatically be siphoned off into housing. Yeah.
0: yeah. I feel like somehow it's just all the same. We all pay the it's same It's all rate. the
1: same. All the same. Doesn't matter where you go. It's all the same. It's all the same. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I mean, I, and I'm a huge fan of, of celebrating and, um, you know, treating yourself right um, and giving yourself rewards for things well done and, and, you know, having a little bit of luxury in your life is never a bad thing. But I think, you know, to be, um, to be debt-free and to, um, to feel the freedom that comes from not having to work a job um, where you've made good decisions and that you that you choose to work and that you love what you do and that you don't feel like a prisoner to the work, um, I think there's nothing, there's no better feeling um, to have than that. And and I and I was lucky to make decisions early in my career that where I started paying for my own healthcare insurance, and I waived benefits at the hospital. And I and I think again, it's one of those moments where I didn't know it when I was 25, but I waived benefits. Um, And I I got my own health insurance, and I feel like that gave me this liberation that I didn't have to work at a hospital to have my own benefits. Right. Um, I'm not a fan of 401Ks, and that's another talk, but another day. Um, But I also (laughs) feel like... We we
0: will do a financial expertise (laughs) talk on businesses and, you know, (laughs) because I really think it's important. I think that, like, as I network, right, theme of the day, networking, but as I network with others, and I want to pick their brains about how they started their business and what they feel about certain things and where they invested their time and their money and like how they manage their time mm-hmm. is really important to me because I think that at the end of the day, those are like some of those skills that you don't learn in nursing school No, yeah, that for sure. help tremendously like in the future. Because I feel like yeah. nurses right now are at this pivoting moment and I'm not talking about every single nurse, but a lot of them, Feel that they have to go travel because they make more money traveling, right? Yeah. But in in essence, they have never learned how to handle finances. Yeah. And they're not financially savvy and they don't know how to save and they have no clue what a 401k is or a 403B or any of those other fancy acronyms and numbers that mm-hmm. come with it. And this is this is where we are right now, you know. Yeah. Um but yeah, I, I mean that's that's that, that is a dream of mine to do. Um sign in, me up. So I you, you are <laughs> signed up.
1: I'm on it. God I'll be there. I love God to talk God. about money.
0: Money with Kathy Vandal. That's what we're going <laughs> to call it. That's right. Okay. Oh, a great like series. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. I, I actually just was invited to be on a podcast to talk about why I don't invest in a 401k
0: anymore. That's awesome. Is it a financially like,
1: like toward podcast? That's awesome. I love podcasts as you can tell. Yes. Anything, anything coming for you in the future? Yeah. So I thought, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned this mentorship for businesses. So one of my, um, one of the things on my bucket list to create, um, as a creative entrepreneur. So, mm-hmm. so I guess, well, I guess some of the other things I would say is, um, is, is to just always trust that what you know is, is enough. Um, there, you probably know this coach, Tiffany Peterson. Um, and she's, I don't, I don't know. He you works know in, our, in with a lot of people in our, one of our other worlds. But um, so Tiffany Peterson was on the call one time and somebody was saying, you know, like, why, why don't you get started in business? Why don't you get started? Why don't you get started? And she said that, well, I just don't know enough. I don't know enough. I don't know enough. And I love what Tiffany said this day. She said, about what and compared to who? Yes. Oh, my gosh. These are like genius words. And they're so simple. So simple. About what and compared to who? And the other follow-up to that, she said, is a second grader is a god to a kindergartner. Right? I was just like, this is so true. I think that in nursing, this is true, too. In business, this is true. We oftentimes paralyze ourselves through comparison Yes. Um, in nursing, it's easy to do. There's always somebody who's been there longer than you, right? Yeah. Like and in the NICU, this is especially true. I, yeah. I actually just started a new support group for newish nurses because, you know, you might be a new grad for a few months, but you're only the new grad until the next new grad is hired. And that cohort <laughs> might be three months behind you. And now you are experienced and they are new. And we feel new a lot in nursing. Yeah. And, and I think you have to always remember how far you've come, no matter where you are in your career and so you know more about some things than people will ever know and even if you've only been a nurse six months or a year or two years or five years you know more and so oftentimes we look ahead at our own mentors and we look at how much we still need to learn which is true Mm -hmm. but you have to turn yourself around and look at the people who are behind you who know less and you only need to know more than who you're teaching, and and that is a lot of people. Whether that's people. about a health lot, condition, a lot, of people. A lot of people, right?
0: Yeah, talk about me hopping on stage for the first ever essential oils nurses conference. There you go. I'm like, I'm like in my mind, right? I had already heard a lot of things because I had been through a lot of like a lot of like little presentations where it kind of like messed up a lot, which is fine, right? It's What you're supposed to do. And I was like. If no one else is going to be the expert on this, I'm going to be the expert on this. Yes. That's what you have to convince yourself of is that you know more than somebody else because you're willing to talk about it.
1: Yeah. And And if you've
0: studied it for 10 minutes, you've probably studied longer than most
1: people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Who want to peruse on social media all day long and find (laughs) information there. Absolutely. So I think it's just important, like if you're going to start, you know, if you're going to start anything new or if you're going to go out on your own is to just remember that you know way more than you give yourself self-credit for and to check yourself with those two easy questions. I need to know more and to ask yourself about what? And then say to compare to who? And, And remember that you're not teaching the person who knows more than you, but the person that knows less than you and that you have a lot to share. So, you know, whether that means you start with a little ebook online or an infographic or an Instagram channel or a Facebook group where you can teach what you know then that's how you start, and that's how you begin to create those expert status of, you know, your tribe will see you as that expert because you were willing to share what you knew, even if it wasn't that you knew everything.
0: Such great, great advice. Like the second grader thing just blew my mind apart. It just Isn't so crazy. So, so many different pieces. And I'm like, yes. I'm like, when you first start into a hospital or anywhere, you're like, you have these heroes of nursing. At least yeah. I did. And then yes. I met them, and I was like okay now what right because you're like now you were the second grader you're no longer the kindergartner and you keep moving this way and it's just man things i'm going to mention to to my students come the fall i'm going to save that one i'm probably gonna freak tiffany tiffany peterson you are a gem of a gem yes
1: yes yeah she's this cute redhead you'll you can find her on facebook and various places but um she was a good friend of the goddards and so she's coaching calls all the time. And um, it was just one morning I was on a walk, listening to them. And those two things really stuck to me. That's awesome. Well, Kathy, anything else you want to mention to the podcast? No, this was so much fun. (laughs) Yay. I love fun. (laughs) I had no idea what we were going to talk about, but it was really kind of a fun uh, recap of my career. So
0: fun fact. uh, I think we've been through this, you know, like all the time is that I have no clue ever what I'm going to talk about <laughs> on this podcast, <laughs> which is a little known secret to people because uh, that's what it comes down to, you know? So, I mean, because I like having honest conversations. Mm-hmm. I like to have meaningful conversations and I like getting to know people and introducing people to other people who they don't know yet. Right. Yeah. And finding out more about somebody is really fun. And since we can't do it, you know, in live and, in in real color because I don't have a you know, podcast studio yet and also pandemic zoom is the best way of having these conversations because otherwise I would definitely be down for having like a studio somewhere like Joe Rogan. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, well, especially if you were right down the street in California. Oh, right. so the thing I was going to say that's on my bucket list oh, yeah. is to, to, is to actually, cause I think I got sidetracked talking sure. about like courses and stuff <laughs> like that's how you get started. Um, is I really do want to create some sort of, um, Nurse Entrepreneur Academy or something where I can just catalog all this knowledge that I've I've collected over the years and you know give people um the resources and the confidence to just take that first step in yeah being becoming I think their own it, boss
0: I think it's so needed I only know one person that has a formal nurse entrepreneurship like program and during the, the lockdown I had purchased this course not it wasn't a course it was kind of more like a collection of recordings Mm. from all these nurses such as like yeah so like nurses that were in like newscasting right so you don't think about that but that's a yeah pathway that you might be interested in in the future and you're like well how do I do that right or nurses that write books or nurses that do like all these other things yeah so career things of entrepreneurs is really important for for that aspect but learning ins and outs of business Mm -hmm. is essential (laughs) for nurses and I wish that we had more of it. So please make the bucket list happen.
1: All right, I will. Like
0: tomorrow, tomorrow, good. Tomorrow okay. is it going to happen tomorrow? Uh, maybe tomorrow? July.
1: I'm going to start in good. July <laughs> or July. I mean, it's two months away. It's fine. We're good. Yeah, I'm like I have to get a couple things off my other list, and then this can start. But no, I think it's really on my heart, and um, I mean, I think even I forget how much I've learned, and um, you know, it's all through trial and error. Mostly, it's through failure. It's through you know some good successes here and there. Um, but I've tried my hand at a lot of different ways to make money. Like you said, I love this doubling your income piece because I think we, um, we we all do, we need to, um, and I I've definitely found ways to more than double my income. I mean, the, the money that I can make now, um, it, and just, there's so many different channels, Um, and opportunities and they're just getting bigger and bigger and easier and easier. I mean, when I think about starting my first online course over a decade ago, I mean, I've been doing webinars since 2007, 2006, Um, you know, and just to think that in the last 18 months, like everybody does a webinar and everybody's on zoom and, you know, that wasn't true a decade ago and so much easier to talk to your ideal client, your, your tribe
0: Yeah. Um, And there's so many different ways of developing that content now too.
1: Yes. Yeah. So it's no no better time.
0: Right. It's everyone should capitalize on it, which is how we landed here in a podcast. So that's right. That's right. It's how we met.
1: It's how, you know, it's just like,
0: yeah, I think, I think we actually did meet on a zoom many, many years ago (laughs) producing a a conference out in Utah. Yes. And I just told Julie the other day, I'm like, I had no clue this thing was even going to be real. I was like, I knew I was going to a convention out there, but I was like, I don't know if this conference is real. I'm just going to wing it, you know, here we are. And then I met such great people that I'm still connected to, which is great. So
1: clearly it was a very fruitful moment. So yeah, no, lucky to know you and thanks for all that you've done for us and for me. And my goodness, any, any
0: time, I think the funnest part was like last October was the last conference. And yeah, like, so how's it going? And I was like, good. She's like, are you going to attend the conference? And I was like, yeah, what do we want to talk about? She's like, oh, you want to talk? I was like, sure, why not?
1: (laughs) Yeah, of course. We always love you to come back and talk. No, I loved your talk last year on, um, it was my first exposure to the um, Ikigai. Yes. And um, oh my gosh, that I've watched so many YouTube videos on that since. and. I mean, I really thought you had invented it. I thought you were so brilliant, and I, wish I did, right? Um, I mean, I, I I attributed it to you for a very long time. This idea, like, I was like gone back and watched your bit, your uh, presentation, and I don't know if if you even mentioned it was Ikigai. guy, and I just like I don't even know, but I don't know. It, it was I mean, the it,
0: it's probably been it's probably been discussed elsewhere. I don't even know where I learned it from because I was kind of like this is, this is where I think people should really learn how to find their true selves. Yes. Find what they're passionate about and then, and then launch themselves into that. And you know, if it was going to be a podcast, it was going to be a podcast, right? Because finding yourself and where your, your internal combustions burn Mm -hmm. is really important for the navigation of where you feel truly passionate about. Yeah. And a lot of people, like I've met some people, people where they're like, well, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to work four hours a week doing this. And I'm like, But you're probably not because you're not into it as much, right? Mm -hmm. You think it's a good idea, but it might not be the best idea because your full self isn't invested into it, you know? But now I'm I'm probably gonna have to revisit that that whole talk. That was a lot of fun. That was my first time presenting on Zoom, obviously, because it's the pandemic and it was lockdown. But it gave me a lot of... Um, knowledge and exposure to presenting via that way because mm-hmm. you're looking at like a little like camera up there
1: yeah and I have my
0: notes down here and I'm like well where can I look right because you want to look engaged right yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really difficult people listening it's really difficult to to give a presentation on zoom it is less difficult stepping on a stage and just winging it yes people because you don't have to look at the camera all the time you can look at people and you don't have to look at people. You can look at a a curtain. You can look at like a a door, (laughs) you know, and you're like, great. This is great. I'm just talking to this door for like 30 (laughs) minutes. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was my first time. And then uh, a week ago I presented to our research conference where I work. And that was just a camera and myself, my presentation. And there's nobody on like on the chat thing. And it's like, feel so alone <laughs> but it gave me yeah, a recording points. is the worst oh it was, it was it was live that was the worst part oh it was it was live it was live and like they segmented you into this other area as like a as like a presenter like a breakout or something I don't know what it was how they segmented you like a um like like a roundtable expert
1: oh okay yep. that makes
0: sense panelists mm-hmm. panelists panelist is the word words are hard today and so the panelists could see each other, but once you're done, you get shifted off into the space where you just kind of like, don't see anybody. Oh, and at least like in that conference that you hosted, you mm-hmm. can see the discussion that was happening.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's very,
0: it very vibrant too. You couldn't see that in, in everywhere. That's so,
1: hard. Yeah.
0: yeah. I was like, Ooh, this is a tough one. Thank goodness p- things are opening again. Cause I need to step on a stage sometime soon.
1: Yes. yes. Anyway. Well, your <laughs> yeah. So we are dynamic speaking for sure. <laughs>
0: Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I look forward to speaking to you again about business, about finance, about what you're doing in the future, because I I think people are going to really love this episode. It was such a great episode with lots of golden nuggets. Well,
1: thanks. It was fun.